You're listening to our weekly podcast, Getting in the Word with Stuart Guthrie. Stuart is the teaching pastor of Family Bible Fellowship of Ridgeville in Early Branch, South Carolina. We hope to grow together with you, seeking real knowledge from the truth, the Word of God. Here's Stuart. Well, we're continuing our study in the book of John. I pray it's been a blessing to you. We've been in here for quite some time. We find ourselves transitioning out of chapter 16 into chapter 17 to observe what is called the prayer of prayers, the high priestly prayer. It's the longest prayer we have recorded of Christ praying. Many, interestingly enough, have entitled this section of Scripture, the real Lord's Prayer. Why? Because when we look at Matthew chapter 6, 9 to 13, and the prayer that Jesus gives is more so an example to follow or a model to follow of the Lord's Prayer. This is actually the Lord's praying to the Father. And it's all of chapter 17. It's really divided into three sections. And that's the way we're going to teach it. And each section deals with something different. In the first few verses, 1 to 5, we're going to see Christ praying to the Father ultimately about Himself and about His glory. And the Father's glory ultimately. And then the next section is going to deal with the prayers of Christ to the apostles. And then he's going to wrap it up to the prayers of all of those that put their faith in Christ even till today. All future Christians, all future disciples. Today we're going to look specifically at the first section of this prayer in which Jesus prays ultimately again for the glory of the Father. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from this section of Scripture, from this prayer. Prayer is a vital part of our lives, or it should be. It should draw us to faithful praying. Praying not only for ourselves, praying for others as well. Ultimately, that God may be glorified in our lives. That God may be glorified in every circumstance of our lives. James reminds us that the prayers of a righteous man accomplishes much. It was the 17th century English Puritan Thomas Watson that said, A man cannot live unless he takes his breath, nor can the soul live unless it breathes forth its desires to God. Prayer is essential to the Christian life as much as air is to your life. We breathe every moment of every day. So why don't we pray every moment of every day? And maybe I'm wrong, maybe you do. But I believe we are living in a day in which we have never been more distracted from the things of this world. We've never been so attacked for our attention than 2022. And I believe that if we're going to be honest, we could all at least say we can certainly be men and women of prayer more often. So as we come to John chapter 17, Jesus is addressing prayer to the Father. And I believe it to be a valuable section of Scripture that will encourage you to be a faithful child of God who directly speaks to the Father every day of the rest of your life. We're going to see an example by our Savior. Praying to the Father. So without delay, let us look at verses 1 to 5 of John chapter 17. Jesus spoke these things. And then lifting 
up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so or that the Son may glorify you. Even as you have gave me authority over all flesh, and to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Three things that I think we can see in our text today that will show us the heart of the Savior. In one of His last prayers on earth, three things that I believe, it was not His last prayer, one of His last prayers, three things that I believe will teach us ultimately about God in prayer. One of the struggles I think that we as preachers have is that we tend to focus on ourselves and our people rather than giving people a high view of who God is in His Word. My hope, my desire is that I can draw your attention to God and who God is as we watch the Son praying to the Father. He reveals so much about who God is. Three things I want you to see. First, I want you to see God's sovereign timing. Secondly, God's sovereign intention. And thirdly, God's sovereign reunion. I want us to first consider God's sovereign timing. The text begins as we read the first part of verse 1. Jesus spoke these things. <clears throat> he is here reminding us of all that He has already said previously in the last several chapters. Really from chapter 13 up to chapter 16. Many call these the upper room discourse in which Jesus in His private ministry begins the preparation for the crucifixion. And Jesus in these times invests His energy into His circle of disciples. He's encouraging them. As He knows that His day is approaching. When we read the text, I think we can lose track of time. But here, Christ knows what lies ahead in just a few hours. They don't know. He's told them several times. And so He says, I've spoken these, Jesus spoke these things. What things? Well, in John chapter 13, we have the Lord's Supper in which we see Jesus having this sweet fellowship with the disciples. And in that moment, He shocks them by serving them as a servant, as a lowly servant. He washes the disciples' feet by way of example for them to follow. Tells them they're to serve one another. Then, we see... Christ reveals the mole that's there among them, the one that would betray Him, the one that would be a sellout to the Savior. But Christ, knowing all things, says, He who eats the bread has lifted His heel against Me. And in verse 27 of 13, he says, After the morsel Satan entered him, therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. And even with all of that drama, 
Even as He washes these disciples' feet, one whom possessed by the devil serves Him diligently. He knows the end result. He knows the devil is a loser. He is a liar. And His end will come to a place. But He gives them a new commandment to love one another. He reminds them it's by this love that you have for one another that you will be known as My disciples. And if you remember in John chapter 14, He's comforting those disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you for what? I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I'm there, you may be all. He's giving them an eternal hope, an eternal promise. It's a beautiful passage which He comforts those disciples. They don't have a clue what He's talking about. Where are you going? And how do we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then when we see Philip, Philip shows his ignorance and says, show me the Father and it is enough. What do you mean, show me the Father? Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me? How can you say, show me the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. It's a beautiful picture. He discloses His oneness to His disciples and also to us as we read His Word. Christ continues to teach them about the paraclete. Remember the lawyer? The Holy Spirit, the one who will intercede on their behalf, the advocate, the helper, whom he promises that he will give and explain, that he will explain to them all things that he has written. And the fact is that the world will no longer see Christ, but he says, You will. Why? Because he will live in you. So many great promises in which He has said in this one simple phrase, and He spoke these things. Promises that the Holy Spirit will come and indwell them. And that He will give them peace. Not as the world gives do I give. Therefore let your heart not be troubled, nor let it be fearful. For you who have placed your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and the resurrection, not your works, not your deeds, not walking an aisle, not praying a prayer, but your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are born again. In Ephesians says you are sealed in with the Spirit of God until the day of redemption. My friends, you have a supernatural ability to trust God and His Word, and He grants you great promises. Not that you can do anything in your own self-perverted modern-day methodology of naming and claim it prosperity. But that it is Christ who lives in you. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. He calls them. As he approaches John chapter 15, as we sang this morning, as he reminds us that he is the vine and we are the branch. We must be connected to the living vine. Jesus spoke these things. Why? Because there was intention. This is, this is critical moments in the life of our Savior and His words are meaningful and powerful and important. You can do nothing apart from Me, He says. And then He calls them again, as He did previously in 13, love one another. I guess they simply needed a double reminder of that. Why? Because your love for one another as the days approach will be vitally important for one another. 
Why? Because you will be hated by the world. Isn't it easier to deal with the wicked world when you're loved by so many? If this is a love that's not created by some fabricated methodology, this is a love that is connected to being dwelt with the Spirit of God, which exemplifies it in the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. If you don't know what love is, just look at 1 Corinthians 13 and get you some clarity on what it is. Because if we are going to face the world, listen, we must love one another. We must care for one another. We must serve one another. We must walk alongside of one another. And when your brother or sister is struggling, you come alongside of them and you build them up and you pick them up and you encourage them. That's what we do. It's one of our core values as a church to engage deeply. That means we're pouring into one another. We're loving one another. But know this, if they hate you, Jesus says they hated me first. And when we come to John chapter 16, Jesus gives a warning that there is a time that is coming in which the world will kill you and they will think that they are doing justice. Boy, are we living in those wicked days. Now, they may not pull out a gun, but they may kill your character. They may blaspheme your name. And in doing so, they think they are justified by Almighty God, and they yet they don't know the Scriptures. They use the Word of God as a weapon, as a tool of mass destruction, rather than a method of grace and gospel-centered lifestyle. But know this, my friends, it's coming. It's here. We're living in a wicked day. And so He promises in the midst of that, He will send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, who will be your defender, who will stand beside you and who will defend you, who will fight your battles. And that's why He can say in Romans chapter 12, Leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He reveals to these disciples the resurrection. That He will rise from the dead. He reveals the rejection. And finally, in John chapter 16, He reveals to them the restoration. It was God's sovereign timing that would explain and validate all things that has been set up until this point. And as we have the full counsel of God's Word, and we get to this point, and we read this simple phrase, Jesus spoke these things, they were spoken at the right time for what they needed and what you and I need today. Jesus spoke these things. And then it says He lifted up His eyes to heaven and He said, Father, the hour has come. I think it's vitally important here to acknowledge the fact that there is a specific sovereign time that has been approached. We lose sight of the God's control in our lives. We wonder, what in the world is God doing sometimes? But how long, O oh Lord, as I read the book of Habakkuk this week? How long will the, 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 the wicked seem like they've won? Listen, His ways are higher than our ways. God is a sovereign God, and because He is a sovereign God, His timing is perfect. Jesus... In this moment, reminds us of God's perfect timing. Jesus knows that this is God's timing and He lifts His eyes to heaven because where else would the Father be except up? That's where He ascended, didn't He? 
The Bible says He ascended up before them and the same way He went up, He will come back. And so He looks up into heaven and He says, Father, My hour has come. I mean, He probably could have did a whole sermon on just the hour has come. It has come! Like, I wish you could just get in me and feel the power in that statement. The hour has come. Like, this, this hour is important for all of us. Notice, if you will, that Jesus prays to the Father. It identifies God as Father, which He does in verse 5, verse 21, and verse 24. And the only place in which He never prayed in the Father's name was there on Calvary when He hung on the cross and He says, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? But everywhere else He approaches the Father in the name of the Father. There is a reverence, a respect, an honor for God the Father. There is a relationship with God the Father and God the Son. And so by way of example, we see Christ approaching His Father in prayer by praying in the name of the Father. So what we find here, interestingly enough, is, is that Jesus is speaking to the Father who is in heaven and says to Him, the hour has come. This is important. Because historically speaking, looking throughout the book of John, this has not been the case. I remember back in John chapter 2 and the miracles of Canaan, when He turned the water into wine and they ran out of wine first. And then His mother said to Him, they have no wine. Okay. And Jesus says to her woman in John 2.4, do I have to do with you what my hour has not come? John chapter 7, Jesus is teaching at the feast. He's speaking publicly and they are not saying anything against Him. And so the Pharisees wonder, do the leaders really, or the people are wondering, do the Pharisees really know that He is maybe truly the Messiah? But eventually we are told in John 7.30, and so they were seeking to seize Him. Yet no man laid hands on Him because why? His hour had not yet come. And then when we come to John chapter 8, the Pharisees are questioning whether He wears your Father. And Jesus says, you neither know Me nor My Father. For if you knew Me, you would know the Father because if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. There is absolute, complete unity between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in a tri-unity of one God. And in verse 8 or verse 20 of John 8, he says these words he spoke in the treasury and he was teaching in the temple and no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And so maybe you're wondering, why, why is so important? Why are you making such a big deal out of this hour? Why is it so necessary to grapple with this and understand in this verse and realize what's so important? That His hour had not yet come up until this point. It should drive us to ask the question, what hour? Well, I'll tell you what hour. It was an hour that was predicted by a sovereign God in, in a sovereign time. A specific point in all of history. It was an hour in which can be compared to the perfect hour in which God the Father sent God the Son into the world and the flesh. Why? Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word what became flesh and dwelt among us at the perfect hour. 
Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God's timing has been perfect and will be perfect and will always be perfect because His sovereignty is even over timing. This was the perfect time. This was an hour by which God the Father considered to be the time in which would take place before the foundations of the world were set into place. It was an hour that has been predetermined by an all-knowing God. What hour? Oh, it was a good hour. It was an hour in which the veil would be torn from top to bottom, giving you and I access into the holies of holies. Oh, it was an hour in which the graves busted open and dead bodies came to life and there was resurrection. It was an hour in which the devil, my friend, was defeated. It was an hour in which Christ ultimately proved His deity. It was an hour in which fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, the suffering servant, in which He would be crucified. It was an hour in which we were reminded from Romans chapter 5, verse 6, for while they were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. It was a time in which we learned was near in John 12, 22-23, when He said Philip came and told Him, Andrew came and told Jesus, and Jesus answered and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It was the hour in which the Son of Man would be exalted, would be put on display that He would be glorified. It was an hour in which Christ would conquer death, It was an hour in which He would seal your salvation with the blood of the Lamb. It was the time and the hour in which the King of kings and Lord of lords would lay down His life a ransom for many. It was the hour in which there would be a change over from the old to the new covenant. It was a time and an hour in which the true sacrifice would become the true sacrificial system. The Lamb would be slain for you and for me. Once and for all, the high priest has paid the debt. It was the hour of the cross. It was the hour of pain. It was the hour, my friend, of salvation. For all lost humanity, which was all of us. I love John MacArthur's point when he says it was an hour for which we see the fulfillment of all prophecies, all types, all symbols, and all pictures. It was an hour, my friend, that made it possible for you and I to be saved, to be delivered from this dead soul to be brought to life. It was God's sovereign timing. It was His sovereign plan. It was His sovereign purpose. Listen, Jesus spoke these things. And lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. The sovereign timing of God. It was a timing by which Christ would be glorified, would be highly exalted. All of His glory would be put on display and the suffering suffered on a cross would be the completed work by which God had predetermined not only that Christ would be glorified, but that the Father would be glorified in the Son. They share their glory. wasn't that Christ was looking for His own glory. We know that from John 14, He does only that which the Father has given Him to do. 
He is about glorifying the Father, not glorifying Himself. Now, I know that it can be a bit difficult in our day because everybody wants to be glorified in themselves. But take this note, write it down, keep it close to your heart, because the reality is is you find nowhere in Scripture when a Spirit-filled person speaks about how godly they are. This life is not about self-glorification. I know we live in a, in a generation when everything's about me and my, and my iPad and my iPhone and my I this and my I that. But let me tell you, God didn't bring you into this world to glorify yourself. He brought you in this world to bring Him glory. He shares His glory with no one, especially us. They might fool a babe in Christ, these who seek their own glory. That might stroke your ego, but the mature Christian who is indwelt with the Spirit of God knows that we have nothing good to boast about. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And left to my own vices, my friend, I would reveal to you the most wicked and hideous sinner of all times, yet the grace of God. Humanity is capable of the worst of the worst. Just look at history. Yet it not for the grace of God. We have nothing to boast about. We don't seek the glory of man or the praise of man. That's what the devil wants. Devil seeks his own glory. That's why he told him, Jesus, there in the wilderness, I will offer you all of these things if you will what? Worship me. If you will give me glory, if you will give me praise. Christ didn't do it for Himself, and neither shall we. Some will argue that Jesus says here, glorify your Son, but I say, for what reason? Why? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The answer is so that, again, the Son may glorify the Father. So that the Father may be glorified because of the Son. Listen, His glory came from His brutal death. (laughs) It came from His staggering obedience. It came from being a suffering servant. Are you sure you want His glory? Because I'm here to tell you, it cost Christ everything. He he, he lived in the ivory tower (laughs) and chose to dwell among sinful mankind. To save and to sanctify and to make us new. He gets the glory. We don't. It was all done so that the Father would ultimately be glorified in the Son. It was the working of God, the Father's plan to redeem humanity through the the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ with His very own Son. That glory came at a price we cannot pay, the debt that we could never fulfill. It was a glory for which you and I would never want and the glory that we will never obtain. You and I were born, Psalm 51.5 says, in iniquity. The Bible again says, all have sinned, there is none right, no, not one. You don't get a mark, you don't get a pass, you are sinful. Yet a sovereign God can send His Son into the world to die on a cross, to open your eyes, to give you a new heart and a new life, and now you are a child of God. That has nothing to do with your works, your abilities. Look how good I am. No, it don't work that way. Titus 3.5 says, It wasn't because of the deeds you've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy and grace. It would not have been because of God's sovereign timing. 
to bring about the death of His own Son. You and I, we all would have been helpless, yet for the glory of God the Father. God's timing is always perfect. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And I wonder how many have yet to put their faith in Christ. God didn't mess up by bringing you this morning. God didn't put you online to listen live. God didn't have this thing recorded so that you could listen to it in however many days or years ahead you hear it. But I want you to know this. There is a God in heaven who is in charge of time and He has you here and He has you listening for His own purpose, for His own glory, that you might be saved. And if you lack one thing, now believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says you will be saved. Listen, repent. The kingdom of the heaven is at, is at hand. So we see God's sovereign timing. Secondly, I want you to see God's sovereign intention. The prayer continues. The intention of the glory of the Father and the Son reveals itself in, in the intention by which God accomplishes this through His Son. We can learn a lot from Christ's obedience. Listen to what Jesus has to say as He's praying to the Father. He says, Even as you have given Him authority over all flesh, to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. I can't quite put my hand on it yet, but by the grace of God one day, I want to know why He's speaking in the third person. Even as you have given Him authority, it's almost like he didn't, he didn't want the glory. He, he, he speaks of himself in the third person. That he may give eternal life. We, we know that Christ has all authority. We know that God has given him all authority. And that he has given him those who may he give eternal life to all whom he has given him. The reason you can't receive the glory which Christ has received from God the Father is because you could never offer what He does. You could have never accomplished what He did. That is that God, in, who is sovereign in control of time, is not only sovereign over time, but He's sovereign control over salvation. Now this splits churches. This is a heavy doctrine. But I want you to know this this morning. Please hear me loud and clear. A prayer has never saved a soul. Walking an aisle has never saved a soul. You, you show me book, chapter, verse. Now, we don't want to overemphasize and swing it too far to one side, but know this, the Bible teaches that God is in sovereign control. And if God is sovereign over time and God knows all things, He knows who's going to be saved. And the text says, to all whom you have given me, He may give eternal life. God is sovereignly in control of salvation. And all that the Father has given Him he may give them eternal life. Now, I don't have a problem with that. Because we're dealing with an all-knowing God who ain't surprised by nothing. That knows what you looked like before you came here. That knows what you acted like before you came here. That knows what you did on Saturday night before you came here. That knows how you treated your wife or your wife you treated your husband. He is a sovereign God. He knows all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and He is the end. He knows who will be saved and who will not be saved. The Lamb's Book of Life was written before the foundations of the world. Therefore, the all-knowing God knows all who will be saved. The question is, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? I don't know that. But I will tell you this, if you believe, then you were the one whom He says here was given to Him so that you might be saved. It ain't my job to, to know the, the whosoever is and the whosoever ain't. Our job is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. 
and trust Him to do His job and us to do our job and we get to be the avenue by which we can see God bring light to darkness. There's no greater joy than to see a dead man turn to life, spiritually speaking. I would think that would be pretty cool to see a dead man raised as well, but but he must die again unless Christ returns. What's more important is eternal salvation. He gives his life a ransom for many on Calvary that they might have eternal life. God can give them eternal life because the price of the Son has been paid. Listen, the sovereign intention of God the Father is to crucify God the Son so that He can accomplish all that He has already preordained and sovereignly willed to pass. You need to understand, we can't deny sovereign election. We can't deny that from before the foundations of the world, God knew who would be saved through the death, burial, and the resurrection of His Son. That we might debate and have differences in how we understand God chooses those unto salvation, whether it's conditional or unconditional election, that we can agree to disagree on that. But know this, you can't escape a sovereign knowledge of Almighty God. He knows who's going to be there in the end. And if you try to thwart the sovereign plan of Almighty God, you might as well be a mite beating his head against a piece of granite. It ain't going to happen. You can't fix it. You can't change it because he's in control. And we don't like being people who are not in control. We like to control every element, the temperature. I mean, if I had my control right now, I would drop this temperature about 67 because I'm sweating. But I can't. It is what it is. It's set at 68, but it's probably 73 right now. God knows some of y'all are cold. And it ain't all about me. It was God the Father who gave God the Son all authority in heaven and on earth over all flesh so that He could accomplish the task which He had been sent to do and that was to save, to lose none that had been given to Him. There was not one drop of blood wasted on Calvary. That's important. Christ not only receives glory because the Father has given Him all authority over the flesh that He might give eternal life. Christ receives glory from the Father because He has granted to those who are of the faith a true knowledge of God. And this is eternal life. What? What's eternal life? That you may know that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Listen, eternal life has... Listen, the knowledge of God is vitally important in, in eternal life. The knowledge of God is vitally important. A knowledge of God is a, is a vital aspect in the life of a believer, and I would suggest even in the unbeliever's life. Why? Because the heavens declare the glory of God. He has shown us Himself to be true in all things since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes, His divine power has proven that He exists. The knowledge of God is beneficial for the believer. But as well as it is beneficial, there are dangers in having no knowledge of God. We talked about this Wednesday night. A true knowledge of God brings about a true understanding that there is no greater knowledge in the world than of God. And the only way that you and I can have a true knowledge of God is to be born again, to have eyes who see and ears who hear. Have you ever wondered, how do they not get it? How do they not see it? Just rewind your life. Have you forgotten so quickly that you once used to reject God? That you exchange the truth for a lie? We need to have a true understanding of God. 
It was Paul Washer in his study, Knowing the Living God, that said eternal life does not just refer to a quantity of life, but to a quality of life. The great purpose of, of life is to know God in an intimate relationship. I can't say I have a great marriage if I don't know my wife. If I don't know what makes her angry, if I don't know what makes her happy, if I don't know what makes her feel special, if I don't have any conversation with her, if I don't have any kind of relationship with her, you would say, my relationship is bankrupt. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, if you don't know God, you don't know the attributes of God, and you are in dangerous place because, my friend, you cannot have a relationship with someone whom you don't know. So there's benefits, but there's dangers as well. So knowing God brings about an ability to understand. Now, I'm not talking about knowledge that's fabricated by some man-made idea that is beyond the ability to prove. No good, healthy knowledge teaches the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of God is, is true understanding. So, so knowledge brings about an ability to understand. It brings about an ability to have true, genuine faith in God the Father. Psalm 9.10 says, Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. But just as there are benefits in knowing the dangers, we need to know the dangers is having a lack of knowledge. It can cause you to make God to be just like you. It can cause you to, to lack trust and, and, and have a lack of faith in life. It can cause you to have some sense of false worship. It can give you an apathetic view of sin. Dude, that's 2022. That's the world in which we live. There's an apathetic view of sin. When we know God, we know how righteous and holy and perfect God is. He doesn't, he doesn't deal with sin. He destroys it. But it's okay to sin. It's okay to do this. It's okay to do that. It's, it's the way they were born. It's just the way that they were made. So we got all these churches going woke. Because they're scared to say what the Word of God says. Well, I would, I would rather say what the Word of God says than say what the culture says to make you feel good because when I stand before God, I'm going to give an account. So I don't really care how it makes you feel. I don't even care how it makes me feel. I want it to change the way I think. That's what the Word of God does. Having a lack of a knowledge of God, listen, will permeate a world of lawlessness. We've removed God from every avenue of our nation. Welcome to a nation that knows not God. And it's just going to keep getting worse. Oh, that's, that's not very positive thinking. Why would it get any better? Look at our leadership. Both Republican and Democrat, they're both wicked. Oh, well, you know, Democrats, they vote abortion. Republicans had the office in the Senate and did nothing. So who's worse? They're both wicked. Why? Because they are, they are men. Men are sinful. We have a nation who wants nothing to do with God. And therefore... Permeates lawlessness. That's why we school shootings and children losing their lives. It's a horrific time to live. But I want you to know, even in the midst of tragedy, God's a good God. Because God's unchanging. Hosea chapter 4, 1 and 2, the Lord rebukes the nation of Israel for its ignorance of God. They were faithless. They had no knowledge of God. They were, they were always cursing and swearing and, and, and full of deceptions and lies. They were murderers. They were thieves. They were adulterers. They were violent. All of those are examples of people who have no knowledge of God, who have no personal relationship with God. 
Welcome to America. Let me tell you what. Please hear me. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Revival doesn't start out there. It doesn't even start right here. It starts right here. If you want to see a nation flipped on its head, then you go out there, you show the world your love for one another, prove to be His disciples by the way you love one another, and you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I'm here to tell you, no wicked heart will ever be changed apart from gospel ministry. You can't change it. You can put whatever substance you want to think about. That's the most grossest and nastiest substance you can imagine. You can stick it on a platter. And you can build a little cake around it. And you can decorate it. And you can go, oh, this cake looks wonderful. And the world goes, yeah, looks like a good cake. But it's not until you get to eating that thing. Now, you might just nibble on the outside and eat the icing, but listen, when you get into it, it ain't no cake. It's whatever substance is nasty. But let me tell you what the world is doing. They have gone beyond just eating the icing on the cake. They have started dealing with the nastiness of what's in it. And they've started dealing with it and saying, mm, this don't taste so bad. Y'all want some of this cake? No, I'll pass. Because what you got ain't cake. And what we got in our day and age ain't Christianity. It's some fabricated, manipulative idea of Christ in which Jesus is Santa Claus, a genie in a bottle. Name it and claim it. Give me something new. Yeah, well, that didn't work out so good for the Mormons. That didn't work out so good for the Jehovah's Witness. That didn't work out so good for the Muslims. They all got a new revelation. Listen, we don't need anything outside of the Word of God. It's full, it's complete, it's sufficient. It's given us everything pertaining to life and to godliness. The problem is we don't even want to obey what we've been given. We, we have to know God. Because when we know God, it changes things. If eternal life is that, that we may know God the Father the only true God and the Son, Jesus Christ, whom has sent, then having no knowledge of God, listen, ultimately, in the end, brings judgment. Brings judgment. So the divine intention of God is to bring about eternal life, to bring about knowledge in the life of the believer. Do you want to know God? you want to know Him intimately, personally? Christ obeyed the Father till the end. His obedience, we see, culminated in the cross. And just like Jesus Christ was expected to walk in obedience in the life of the Father, so we are expected to walk in obedience to the will of God. How did God get glorified? Not only by the knowledge of who He was and who God the Father was, but also, I want you to notice, in His obedience to the Father. You realize and understand that before the foundation of the world, God's predetermined plan for your life was put into place. You're not designed to just walk aimlessly through this life. That's never God's intention. You may know what the plan of God is for your life. But if you don't know what it is, let me tell you what it's not. It's not walking in disobedience to His living and active Word. The plan of God for your life is obedient living. I'm not talking about legalism for just you can be saved. I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit. I'm talking about the Christian who is no longer Him who lives, but Christ who lives in Him. You should walk in obedience. And when you don't, you should have the desire to repent and turn back to God and ask Him for forgiveness. If you can live in habitual sin and never repent and turn back to God, I, I'm afraid you got nothing. Because he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. There will be a progressive, ongoing sanctification that by God's grace and mercy through the power of the Spirit and His Word, He will grow you because Hebrews 12.14 says, without sanctification, no one will see the kingdom of God. Let's just call it what it is. There should be obedience. 
Not so that you may go, look at me how good I am. But because he's God the Father. And he needs to be glorified by the way you love one another, by the way you treat one another, by the way you treat your enemies. Jesus was a praying man. Yes, this longest prayer recorded in the Scriptures, but remember the prayer He prayed on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know what what they do. doesn't mean you'll be perfect all the way through your life. You will fail, of course you will, but by God's grace you will seek repentance and forgiveness in God's grace. And be restored. Be restored. Everything God does is for the purpose of restoration. That's the gospel. If it's only cut, slice, cut, slice, cut, slice, cut, slice, get out, kick out, demean, and there's no grace, it ain't gospel. Because once were we, once were we, and we typically forget that, but by the grace of God, doesn't mean you're perfect. You will fail. But you need to seek God's forgiveness. In Jesus' prayer to the Father, He acknowledges His obedience and acknowledges that He has accomplished the task that's been given Him to do. And that, my friends, ends not well for Jesus in the flesh. His obedience took Him to the cross. Your obedience, my friend, will bring about tribulation in your life. It will bring about persecution. In this world, you will. You have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So I don't know what it is you struggle with today. But I want you to know this. Those who are in Christ will have a desire to obey the Father, not in a legalistic manner, so that you can look holy and righteous and get self-glory and say praise me to the world, but rather out of a desire to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. We as Christians have today the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers. The promise this hour that has been spoken here in the cross of Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection from the dead is... Soon at Pentecost, they will be indwelt with the Spirit of God. And God will be living in them, as He is for us today. Christ will be their living example. He is your living example, that your body will be a living sacrifice to God. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to give your bodies to God as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I love how Christ points to the fact that He glorified God by His obedience to the call in His life. Shall I remind each of us here today in person or listening live online, Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are His workmanship. I'm not a builder, but if I build something, it's mine. As a matter of fact, I built this pulpit, me and my father. This is our workmanship. Created for its very purpose. And we got to define its purpose. We got to define its depth and its breadth and its length and its height and its width and all of that. We, we got to put the carpet so it wasn't so loud when I banged on it. We got to do this size so I could put my hands on it. it. It's our workmanship. Created for what we intended for it to be. You, my friends, are His workmanship. Created for what He designed for your life. You don't get to decide that. The question is, will you be a living example? We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for a good work. Which God prepared beforehand so that you might walk in them. Before the very foundations of the world, you put your name in there. God created you for something great that would give Him glory. And too many of us are living our life for our own glory, for our own name, building our own kingdom that will never stand the test of fire in the end. 
So it's God's sovereign intention that the Son be obedient to the Father, and is likewise that, that, that it is our desire to be obedient to the Father. It's God's sovereign intention that you complete the task that He's prepared before you beforehand, which I, I don't know you need to determine what that is. I suggest you fall on your knees and ask God, God, to reveal to me the, the, the purpose for my life for the edification of the body of Christ. Not this building, but the people who are part of the universal body of Christ. We see God's timing. Sovereign. We see God's sovereign intention. And lastly, we see God's sovereign reunion. Jesus' prayer continues. Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. My friend, here we see a sovereign reunion that will soon take place. It was a desired of the Son to be with the Father once again. It shows us His deity. That Christ existed before the world was. Matter of fact, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 16, says, For in Him, Christ, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And He is what? Before all things. Jesus ain't your homeboy. I saw a shirt that said that Jesus is my homie. No, no, Jesus is your Savior. Jesus is God in flesh. Don't make Jesus to be like you. And in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. The church. He makes the decisions. He is King. He is Lord. He determines what's spoken from His Word. Who was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself would have to come first place in everything. Let me ask you, is Christ first in your life? If Christ is going to glorify the Father which He did, He had to be obedient to the Father. He was first in His life. He needs to take first place in everything of your life, in your family, in your job, in your ministry, in your pocketbook, in your social media posts, in what you take in. He needs to be first. Because let me warn you this morning, my friends, you drink from poison as well as you're going to get poison. And you drink from it long enough, you won't even taste the poison anymore. You become a part of your system. He needs to take first place. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, Having made peace through the blood of His cross, he, he bought it. He paid for it. Through Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Listen, I pray you will consider where you will end up when you die and you leave this earth. Will you be reunited with Christ? Christ is seated now at the right hand of the Father where He intercedes for us with groanings we can't even understand. When life gets so tough, and you, I, I did it this week, Lord, I don't understand. I don't get it. How? What? Pray. I can't. I don't even know what to ask for, God. I need You to pray for me. He's there. The question is, where will you be? Where will you be? Because the Bible's very clear. There is but one door. There is but one gate. There is but one way. And it ain't the ways of the world. It ain't the methods of man. It is only by trusting in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if your steady diet and intake isn't gospel, you will miss it. And I won't stand before God and say, I didn't tell Him. You take one ounce of your deeds to the front gate of the kingdom of God, and God would ask you why I should let you in heaven. Well, you know, I did this, I did that. He'd say, depart from me. I never knew you workers of lawlessness. No, there's but one way, one key 
and it is Christ. That He left heaven and became a man, died in your place, that you might be saved if you'll believe Repent and believe. You've sinned. You've broken the law of God. You can't stand before God. You need a justifier and it's Christ. You need to put your faith in Him today. All of these things had to take place so that we might have life and have life abundantly. This is the prayer of prayers. Will you be presented blameless above reproach? Will you be perfect before a holy, righteous Father can only come from a changed life? If you find yourself today claiming to be of Christ and yet with no new, what you have is not true. He don't make mistakes. He gives new hearts. He gives new life. You are a new creation in Christ. The old things have Passed away. Behold, the new have come. He who began a good work will see it to completion. Transform hearts. Transform lives. Not simply in word, but in deed. Listen, it was a prayer to glorify the Father. And my prayer for us is that we will first be saved. But secondly, that we will glorify God with our lives by what we think, by what we say, that we will be of like mind, as Don read Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 10. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Let's pray. This has been Getting in the Word with Pastor Stuart Guthrie. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. And be sure to visit us online at familybiblefellowship.org. And come see us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m.